0: What's up, what's up? It's good to see you all this morning. Um, I hope you enjoyed listening to Beyonce, Crazy Love there. I, I actually, uh, I asked them to play that song during our Say Hello time this morning. Uh, not because I'm a huge Beyonce fan, although she's got some good hits. Um, but, but because of that idea of being crazy in love. Um, love can have a powerful effect on people, can't it? Like, so much so that, it, that love can make us seem crazy at times. And uh, there's a ton of songs about this. Obviously, Beyonce's not the only one. It's not a new idea. As a matter of fact, um, this idea of being crazy in love is something that the Apostle Paul wrote about, about 2,000 years ago, in a letter that he wrote to the church in Corinth. And uh, for th- this situation, he wasn't writing about a woman that he had fallen crazy in love with. Um. Rather, he was letting him know that he was crazy in love with Jesus. He had the kind of loving relationship with Jesus that changed absolutely everything in his life. And this is the kind of loving relationship that God actually wants to invite each one of us into with himself. You know, this semester, uh, we've been studying the book of 2 Corinthians. And uh, this sermon series has been called Picture of a Faithful Christian Servant. And each week, we've been seeing... Uh, This different aspect of what the life of a faithful Christian servant should look like. And this week, we're going to see that a faithful Christian servant is someone that's crazy in love with God. Now, I've actually been really excited to preach this passage. This is uh, one of my favorite passages in Scripture. uh, Because in it, we see this crazy love that God actually has for us. And then we also get to see the way that that should impact our lives. The crazy impact that it should have on us. Uh, So let's pray, and then we're going to dive into our text for today. God, I just thank you that you are here with us. Holy Spirit, I just pray that um, you'd make us aware of your presence. God, I ask that uh, you would move in our hearts this morning, as I know in in some ways you already have through the, the musical worship, and God, now as we get into your word, I pray that uh, it would be something that, that draws us closer to you. Lord, help us to see more of your heart this morning. God, I pray that, that we wouldn't um, just sit here and, and do the same thing we do every week, hear a message, go on, have our lives be the same, God, but that we would actually be moved by who you are, that we'd be moved by your heart and the way that your word so clearly portrays that to us. Lord, help us to see the depth of the love that you actually have. God, soften our hard hearts. We give this time to you this morning. We love you so much, and we want to honor you and praise you. We lift this prayer up in your son's awesome name. Amen. Okay, so the text we're going to be in this morning, I'll give you some time to flip there or go there on your phone if you need, because... As mentioned earlier, we have some technical difficulties, so I don't know what's wrong with the projector this morning. Uh, but that's all right. We're going to go old school. Jesus didn't have sermon slides uh, when he preached, and uh, neither did Paul. So uh, I think we can do all right without some sermon slides. But we're going to be in Second Corinthians chapter five. So go ahead and open up to there if you have a Bible with you, or if you have the Bible app on your phone. You're going to want to be able to see this text. Uh, I'm go- I actually had a ton of slides I was going to walk you through this morning. Um, but that's okay. We're, like I said, we're, we're going to do it the uh, old school way here. We're going to be in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting at verse 11. All right. This is what it says. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it's for God. If we are in our right mind, it's for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you, and in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path, so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love, in truthful speech, and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness, in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine, yet regarded as imposters, known, yet regarded as unknown, dying, yet we live on, beaten, and yet not killed, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, poor, yet making many rich, having nothing, and yet possessing everything. Okay, we're going to stop there. Uh, that's going to be our main text that we're working through this morning. And uh, if you've been with us over the last couple of months, you know that we've been studying Second Corinthians, and that one of the main reasons that Paul was writing this letter was to defend his reputation against some false teachers that were spreading lies about him. that was causing some relational problems between him and the church there. Uh, And we can see that in the text we just read that some people even thought that Paul was crazy, right? We see in in 5.13, it says, if we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God, right? So so we don't know for sure what it is that these people were saying about Paul for why they thought uh, that he was crazy or out of his mind, but uh, when you look at his life and when you look at the message that he preached, you can see why some people would start to say this. Now, let's remember this for a second. Paul, as well as any of us in here that are Christians, we believe something kind of crazy, which is that we believe that someone rose from the dead, (laughs) okay? Like, because Christianity is so saturated into our culture, that that gospel message, you know, it's proliferated around the world, which is great, but sometimes I think that we almost forget to see kind of how extraordinary that idea is, that we believe that someone rose from the dead right? And so when Paul goes around and he's preaching this, he's not preaching in a time where a ton of people have heard this message before. And so when he starts to say these things, especially when he brings up the resurrection, there's people that think he's crazy. Uh, Acts 17 is an example for you. He's preaching in Athens, he's he's, uh, telling them about the Lord, and then eventually uh, he gets to the resurrection of Jesus. It says in Acts 17 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. Okay, there's another time in Acts 26, uh, Paul is, uh, he's in prison at this, at this point, he's in, on trial before this king named Agrippa, who is interested in hearing why Paul is in jail. So Paul goes, he shares his testimony with him, uh, and then he gets to this idea about Jesus rising from the dead. And at this point, Festus, who's also one of the people listening to him, it says at this point, in Acts 26, 24, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. You see, Paul was used to being called crazy, and he didn't care, right? Because he knew that what he was preaching was true. When Festus stopped him and said, you're going insane, this is how he responded. He said, I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice, because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. So what Paul says, saying, is, I'm not crazy. All I'm doing, I'm, I'm telling you what's true and what's reasonable here. Is, as crazy as it might seem, this is real history. Like, and, and so in that phrase where he says, this wasn't done in a corner, right? What he's getting at is like, the resurrection of Jesus, like, the, both his crucifixion and his resurrection are public historical events. Like, there are many, many witnesses to all these kind of things, right? A lot of religions, they kind of come from the idea of, oh, this angel came to me in a vision and said X, Y, and Z, and it's like, well, you can either believe it or you cannot believe it, right? Our faith is based on something that's actually very public, that Jesus was publicly executed. Like, crucifixion is, is designed to be a very public thing. You're literally put up onto a a giant cross on display as an example actually for anyone that would that would choose to defy rome that they would be executed that way that was that was a very very public thing that happened i mean think about it jesus was sending jerusalem into an uproar (laughs) think uh, when he entered in there were people cutting down palm branches and throwing coats on the ground and all this kind of stuff it's not like he was an obscure figure by that point he was well known he was publicly executed and then when he rose from the dead, it wasn't like that was just in a corner too. It wasn't like one guy saw it and then everyone else had to believe him. He appeared to all the disciples, yes, on several occasions, but also we see he actually appeared to other people too. Like Luke 24 talks about this time when he's on the road to Emmaus and he, he speaks to these two other guys. And then Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 actually speaks of how Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at one time. All right, we, we don't have it rep- that recorded an Acts or anything but it clearly was something that that happened and that was known and Paul referenced it when references it when he's writing to the Corinthians so what, what Paul is saying is when these things weren't done in a corner he's like you know like like there's a lot of witnesses to these kind of things that have happened a lot of people saw Jesus crucified and a lot of people have seen him after he was crucified that when he was risen and and you know, he also says, the, the prophets foretold this when he says, do you believe the prophets, King Agrippa? I know that you do. He's saying, not only was this stuff really public, but it was also told all, all, for a long time that this was something that was going to happen. And I don't have time to get into that. that. That would kind of make me drift from the main focus of our sermon this morning uh, to try and prove to you how the prophets were showing that. But really, you'll see this all throughout the New Testament that, that their authors are referring back to all these kind of ways the Old Testament was telling us what was going to come. And so as crazy as the truth sounds, it's still the truth. Jesus really did die. He really did raise from the dead. And through that, that really is the way that we are forgiven of sin. And so Paul wasn't crazy. What's actually crazy is the kind of love that God has for us. Like that's what's actually the difficult thing to believe. Not that these things happened; they're well documented, but, but more like, how is it that God would actually love people in this kind of way? Like, it's crazy that God loves us in the first place, right? But he does. Like, he's perfect. We're not. He's totally out of our league. He's so great and awesome and perfect and infinite. And, and, and we're not. Like, we're, we're weak and we're sinful. And, and we you know, oftentimes don't even, like, pay attention to him or care about him. And, and yet, he's still the one that chooses to initiate with us. We actually love because he first loved us. And you know, he doesn't just kind of like us. He's not just like kind of interested in us. The love that he has for us is more than a swipe right on his phone. It's a a deep, deep love for us. And as a matter of fact, uh, consistently the way that the scripture shows us this deep, deep love that God has for us is because Jesus died for us. Right? Look at this. uh, Several different, I'll, I'll just give you a few different examples of this. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Romans 5, 8. You've probably heard me tell you this a hundred times, but I'm going to keep telling to you. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, look at this one from 1 John 4, 9 10. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, okay? We see this over and over and over from the scriptures. It says, you want to know how God loves you? This is the greatest way that he's shown it, that Jesus Christ died for you. And in that first John passage there, it says that he's an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That word atone simply means to make amends or reparations, right? Like, like our sin has separated us from God, and, and so we need atonement. We need something that makes amends, that repairs that relationship. And so what is that? That atoning sacrifice, that thing that repairs, is the sacrifice of Jesus, his death on the cross. Now we might ask, what what exactly is going on here? I think that sometimes people don't always grasp this. It's one of those things that maybe you hear growing up a lot. Oh yeah, Jesus loves you and He died for you. But when I talk to people on campus, I like to try and do street evangelism, and um, you know, I'll, I'll kind of get cliche answers from people sometimes. Oh yeah, Jesus is my savior. What's that mean? You know, how do you know God loves you? Well, Jesus died for me. What's that mean? And I find consistently that that people don't necessarily know how to answer that question. What does it mean? That Jesus died for us, and how does that show that He loves us anyway? Right, because like, it only shows that you love someone if you die for them if they actually needed you to do it. Right, like if they're actually in danger, then you dying for them shows an act of love. To, uh, as an example, if I'm stuck in a burning building, and uh, you, you know, or let's let's say if Anya is stuck in a burning building, um, and I I run in and I go and I get her out, Then and maybe even I die in the process. I have to toss her out a window to Cassie or something. Like, and I die in the process. That, that shows my love for her, right? Because I was willing to sacrifice for her, to sacrifice myself in order to save her because she was in danger. However, let's say that our house catches on fire. All of us are safely out of the house. Everyone's out. Austin and Kaylin are out. The dog's even out, everything. No one's in danger. And all of a sudden I'm like, you know what? I love you so much, I'm going to run into the house, and I just run into the house and die in the flames. That would not show love, would it? That would just show madness, right? And, and, and yet sometimes there's, there's people that I hear that say, well, well, yeah, the death of Christ wasn't really necessary for the forgiveness of our sins. Absolutely it was. The only way that the death of Christ actually shows God's love for us is because we actually needed him to die for us, We actually were in that burning building. This is how Ephesians 2 uh, describes this state that we are in apart from Christ. It says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Okay, I want you to be clear about this. God loves you as sinners, right? Like we've seen that. But I also want you to realize this. You are not by nature deserving of God's blessing. Like by nature, we are deserving of God's wrath. We are the people that have been living in sin, disobedient, gratifying the desires of the flesh, all these kind of things, constantly rebelling against him. We are not entitled to God's blessing. What we are actually entitled to is his wrath. That's what we've earned. The Bible teaches that the wages of sin is death. Wages are what you earn when you work, right? The works that we have are works of unrighteousness, and they've earned us God's wrath. And so when we say that Jesus died for us, what we mean is that he literally went and, and he took the wrath of God that we deserve upon himself. All right, I want to teach you a big theological term here that you learn in seminary. It's called penal substitutionary atonement, okay? Uh, now, I want you to know that term because I, it, it really communicates well what's, what's going on here, all right? Penal substitutionary atonement. I'm just going to break that down for you. First off, this idea of penal, it's it's getting at the idea there is a penalty for our sin, right? The wages of sin is death. What is it that Jesus did on the cross? He died. Now, substitutionary, what is that teaching? That there is a substitute that took that penalty in our place, all right? Jesus goes to the cross for us. This is what 2 Corinthians 5.21 was saying when it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin." for us you get this idea he he didn't have any sin but for us he takes it on he becomes sin it says even so so he takes the penalty as our substitute and then that last part atonement because the penalty was paid by our substitute we are forgiven of our sin the repair has been made All right, and this is what uh, 2 Corinthians 5.19 is getting at, which says God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Because our substitute Christ took the penalty for us, we are reconciled to God and our sins are not counted against us. That's what it means that Jesus died for us. Now, this idea is actually very present in the Old Testament. It was demonstrated a ton in the sacrificial system. You would see uh, these animals being sacrificed, their blood being poured out. All this uh, kind of was was communicating the idea of the sin being put upon these creatures. But none of these things were ever actually able to take away sin. They were always only pointing forward to the one that would truly be able to do that. And in the passage we read earlier, when Paul was on his defense uh, in front of Festus and Agrippa, he even said, don't you believe the prophets? I know that you do. I have to wonder if he's had Isaiah 53 on his mind, uh, which teaches this idea of penal substitutionary atonement very, very clearly. Isaiah 53, 5 and 6 says this. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Right? Like, there, there it is, right there, right? Your sin was put on Jesus. And it's by his wounds that we are healed. This is, this is the beauty uh, of the, the reality that God loves us so much that Jesus came and he took the wrath and the sin that we deserved upon himself. And that's great. But it actually doesn't just end there, right? Not only does he take our sin upon him, but he also gives us his righteousness. Right? 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him to be sin, uh, who had no sin, to be sin for us. We've already talked about that. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's not just that our sin is taken away, but the righteousness of God, right? Jesus in the flesh, the only one that's ever lived a perfect life, transfers that life to us. And so we call this beautiful exchange, that he takes our sin and we get his righteousness. You know, how amazing would it be if you were uh, horribly in debt? Some of you don't have to imagine that, if you are horribly in debt. Uh, but like, what, you're horribly in debt, how great is it if that's just wiped out, right? Like, that in and of itself is absolutely amazing. But this is even more than that. It's not just that your debt is wiped out, but that you're also given an infinite bank account. Like, yes, your sin is done away with, but you're also adopted into the family of God, identified in Christ, given his righteousness. This is like, this is like too good to be true, right? But this is what the scripture is teaching plainly. This is why I'm taking so long to just clearly walk you through this. I, I don't want you to just be able to repeat things that you maybe learned in Sunday school but never understood the depth of what this is really telling us about God and how he loves you and, and, and what he's done for you. And, and you know what, by the way, he didn't just do this for his favorite people. It wasn't just the people that are really good or, you know, it's like, all right, you did, you, you've gotten yourself halfway there, I'll take you the rest of the half. No, no, no. He did this. The death that he died was for everyone. If you go back to 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, you can look back at that in your Bible if you want to. He says, "For uh, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all. And therefore all died. And he died for all. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but him who died for them and was raised again. Jesus died for all. Like he loves all people. You know, the, the verses that we looked at earlier, John three sixteen 16 and, and Romans 5, 8, once again, these are teaching that same idea, right? For God so loved who? The world that he gave his only son. You look like at Romans 5, 8. Matter of fact, I'll, I'll read a little bit earlier, uh, Romans 5, 6 through 8. It says, you see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, the the death of Christ, this, this love that God has, it's not even just for the people that are his favorite, it's for the world. Now, this does not mean that all people are saved. You still have to respond to this gift Uh, in in faith, in order to receive salvation, and if you look back at uh, verses 14 and 15, that's even why it says in verse 15, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them, it was raised again, so yes, there's still a distinction between who he died for, and then those who actually live, but what I want to make clear to you is his love, I don't care who you are, what your background is, or anything you're thinking, he loves you, and his death was for you, Now, all of this, why why does he do all this? Why does he do all this, right? It's not just so he has pity on us, right? It's not just because he sees us as miserable creatures who are in a terrible state. It's like, ah, yeah, let me throw you a quarter. You know, maybe the way we we look at a homeless man on the street, we don't really want to invite him into our life. We don't want him in our home. But yeah, I'll give you a dollar. I have pity on you. That's not what's going on here. No, rather, it's actually so that we could be with him. It's him taking the homeless man by the hand, lifting him up, putting him in his car, taking him home, and adopting him as his own child. It's it's not just a a forgiveness because we're in a pitiful state. It's a love saying, I want to be with you. That, That term reconcile, you saw it come up over and over again when we were reading our main passage. That idea of reconcile means to bring together. So all of this is done not just so that we wouldn't have to experience the wrath of God, but so that we could enjoy fellowship with him and that he could enjoy fellowship with us. Like that is something that God actually desires is fellowship with you. And that's why Jesus went to the cross. And so I have to say, like, who, who does this? Like who loves like this? Who dies to save people that don't even love them back? And, and now you can see why the love of God seems crazy, and that anyone who would preach this, like Paul did, might seem crazy. Not just that he was saying that this man rose from the dead, but you're, you're telling me that I'm actually saved by God's grace alone and not by my works? That Jesus took the wrath for me? Like, like we, we can't grasp that. And you see Paul consistently actually fighting this in the New Testament where people just, they, they can't believe in this idea of salvation by grace alone. They always want to add in this other day of, yeah, yeah, well, we're saved by that, but we're also, we've got to put all these works and we've got to be circumcised and we've still got to follow the law. It's like, no, you're saved by the blood of Jesus. And that's it. That is what saves you. This is the scandal of grace. Like, like we we just have the hard, the hardest resistance to this in our hearts of seeing the incredible depth of love that God has for us but when you become convinced it's the kind of thing that changes everything and and this is what Paul wrote in second Corinthians five fourteen right for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died And so you see this kind of of radical life transformation that happens in Paul and why he's fine being called a crazy man in Athens and uh, before Agrippa and, you know, whatever, people might say that about him in Corinth. Whatever, If, if all that happens, that's fine. If we're out of our mind, it's for God. Because he is totally convinced of this love. And this love is the kind of love that, as crazy as it is, has a crazy impact on us. You're made into a new creation, right? That's what 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. You are made new. Like once again, see, God isn't just trying to tell you do better, be better, reform yourself. He's saying, I'm going to transform you into a new person. This is why the Bible talks about being reborn, As you're made into this new person, what does this life look like? Well, well, first off, it's a life that's lived with God, right? We talked about that idea of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5.18, it says, All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. That we experience fellowship with him. Real fellowship, real connection with God. What does that look like in the life of a Christian? Well, first off, it means that we're people that speak to him. You know, when we pray, we don't pray because we were taught that this is what you do before your meal. Or, or, you know, here's some words to memorize and say before you go to bed every night and every morning when you get up. It's like, no, like, like, I know the God of the universe. He hears me, he listens, he asks me to come before his throne and I'm going to do that. You know, Philippians 4, 6 to 7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. For the Christian, prayer is a real thing. Because we know the love of God, we know that he actually hears our prayers, wants us to bring them before him, wants to respond, wants to guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Like, like do you struggle with anxiety? I'll bet you do. This is is something that that God wants you to bring to Him because He loves you and cares for you. He wants to guard your heart and your mind. He's literally reconciled you, given you the opportunity to have fellowship with Him. That as you walk with Him, you don't have to live your life in fear and anxiety. You're literally walking with God Almighty. You know, we're, we're people, as we live this life of being reconciled, brought together with God, that we find real comfort in Him. Right? Paul wrote about this at the very beginning of his letter in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles. You know, for the Christian, we we have such an awesome advantage in going through every kind of struggle and trouble because we know that we don't just have to tough it out on our own. But there's a real God that loves us and cares for us and walks with us through that. And we're people that listen to him. Right? Like, like, that God has given us instruction. Look at all that he's told us in his word. We, we should be people that are hungry to hear from him, that are hungry to know his word, to apply it, to, to pray that God would lead us and guide us. He's given us his spirit to do that. You know, I think, of, I love the prayer in, in Psalm 27, 11. It says, teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. This is the, the reconciled life with God, this life with him or people that speak with him, that find comfort in him, that listen to him. There's a real fellowship here. It's not just, being a Christian doesn't mean that you come here on Sunday mornings. It it means that, that you have been forgiven of your sin, you've been brought together with God, and you live life with him, knowing that you're forgiven in the blood of Christ. You know, as, as we live this life with him, we start to realize that the reason for which we are alive changes. And, uh, you know, Paul said, he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. When you understand that you owe your whole life to Jesus, you realize that he should be king rather than you, right? Like your opinion about whatever is best has to submit to whatever God says is best. Now, these two things won't always be in opposition to each other, but sometimes they will. And, and for the Christian, we, we realize, okay, I'm not king anymore. It's, I don't live for me. I live for the one who died for me and rose again. And so here, here's some examples of, of what I'm talking about with this, this idea of the reason for which I live. First off, uh, the way that you spend your money um, is, is going to be the way that God would want you to, rather than the way that you would want to. Matter of fact, you realize that you don't have any money what you are is a steward of God's money. You don't own a single penny. It, it, it all belongs to him. And so now that the way that you're thinking about your finances and not just, oh, this is what I want to do, and this is how I want to save, and all this kind of stuff, it's like, God, what do you, how do you want me to steward all of these resources that you've given me? And I'll tell you what, God cares a lot about the poor, and he cares a lot about making disciples. You know, the way that you spend your time Like, this is through that lens as well, too. Right? It's like, it's not just your time to do whatever you want with it. Like, God owns your life. And and I think that we spend a lot of our time doing things, really, that that aren't very important in light of eternity. And, And I'm guilty of this, too. Like, even as I was preparing this message, I mean, I felt convicted about, have I really been using my time in a way where I say, I'm not living for me. I'm living for the one who died and rose again on my behalf. The job that you pursue should be about him, right? Uh, And and I think John did a great job speaking up here earlier. I don't think that every one of you is called to go into like ministry as a career, okay? I think God wants to send Christians out into all different sectors of the economy. But um, what what I do know is that whatever you find yourself doing, it must be through the lens of realizing that you're there to love God and love people. Like you're there to glorify him. So if that means that you're going to be working in finance, then you're still going to find a way to say, God, how can I work as a person in finance to your glory? And that is my first and primary objective in why I'm doing this. You know, if you're an architect or a teacher or a businessman or an engineer, or whatever it may be, with all these kind of things, it all comes back to I don't live for myself anymore. And that that requires you to get up every day with an understanding of God, what is it that you want me to do with all of the, the opportunities, the resources, the situations that you put me into? For right now, for most of you, your students, how can you be a student to the glory of God? That is something for you to pray about and wrestle with Him with. Ask God, why have you put me in the classes you put me in next to the people you put me around? At the University of Cincinnati, why am I here and how can I live in this space for your glory? You know, the the spouse that you pursue, if you pursue one at all, should be about Him, right? Like like your life is not about you anymore, it's about Him. And, And so if your whole life is about living for Jesus, I I hope that it would be clear that it makes sense. It it doesn't make sense to link up with somebody else that doesn't have their whole life about Jesus. Okay? I I don't know where we get this idea where it's like, well, you know, as long as the other person kind of respects my religion or something, it's good. It's like, no! That's such a shallow view of what God has called you to. Like, God has called you to complete and utter devotion to Him in your life. Everything is about Him. How in the world does it make any sense to link up most closely with somebody that isn't trying to do that same thing. That'd be like me t- saying, I'm heading over to Langsum and tying myself together with someone else who maybe is heading over towards CCM. Like, it, 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 It's not going to work well, right? Like We're trying to walk in two different directions. The only way I'm tying myself to anyone is if they're going to that same place. You know, it, this life in Christ, that the way that his love changes us, it also causes us to see people differently, right? He says in in 2 Corinthians 5.16, he says, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. We regard no one from a worldly point of view. What does it mean? What does it mean to to regard someone from a worldly point of view? Uh, Well, one thing I would say is that uh, you kind of rank them. Right? Like, like all of us, I think, have this sinful tendency to rank people based on their usefulness to us. But how successful are they? How intelligent are they? How beautiful are they? How talented are they? Right? We like interacting with people that are high in those things, and, and we oftentimes want to avoid people maybe that are low in those things. And you know, basically, it's, it's a very selfish way of viewing people a very worldly way of see, looking at their value based upon what they have to offer, rather than who they are and whose image they're made in. And you know, Paul says that he even used to look at Jesus this way. There was a time when Paul did not see Jesus for who he really is. Right? There's a time that that Paul was persecuting all the followers of Jesus. He he, he viewed Jesus as someone. He viewed Jesus as a troublemaker, a deceiver. And, and there are still plenty of people that view Jesus that way today. Uh, there are still others that, that are viewing Jesus from a worldly point of view. Maybe it's not as bad as what Paul was doing initially before he became a Christian. But there's still a lot of people out there say, oh yeah, I think Jesus is a great teacher. I, oh, Jesus, J- Jesus is good. I, like, he stirred things up. He was a revolutionary. He was a great movement leader or an important historical figure. Maybe he was even a prophet. All of those kind of things are still viewing him from a worldly point of view. He says, I don't view Jesus that way anymore. When, when Paul came to see Jesus for who he actually was. He appeared to him on the road to Damascus, knocked him blind, and nothing was ever the same again. He came to realize Jesus is the Son of God. And so we don't view him from a worldly point of view anymore. We understand who he actually is. And when we come to understand who Jesus is, he transforms us, makes us these new creations. And what happens? Not only do we view Jesus differently, but we start to view people differently now. Rather than just like, oh, I, I'm going to view you based on what you have to offer me, I'm going to view you based on the way that God views you. That you, you are an infinite being that is, and what I mean by infinite being, infinite is not actually the right term, everlasting. That like your soul is going to continue on into eternity. And I'm going to view you as someone who's made in the image of God, who's precious enough that Christ would die for you. And, and you're going to spend... Somewhere in eternity, like like that—that's not viewing people from a worldly lens, and that's—and Paul didn't view them from a worldly worldly lens, and that's why he was willing to go and preach the gospel in all these different places, uh, willing to sacrifice all of these different kind of things and go through all this kind of hardship. Why? Because he knew how desperately people needed to hear about Jesus. In Second Corinthians five eleven, the first verse we read from our main passage, it says, "Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord." we try to persuade others and the verse right before that in verse 10 he talks about how we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of christ that's a scary thing that's a scary thing if you've got a lot of sin in your life and, and so what is it that we try to do we try to persuade others and that's where he gets in this whole kind of thing telling us how there's this way we can be reconciled and not have our sins counted against us that we can be people who are reconciled to god and so this way he says we're we're christ's ambassadors like he's making his appeal to us be reconciled to God and and I would say that that's the next thing that happens in your life you become an ambassador right second Corinthians five twenty. we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us we implore you on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God an ambassador is someone who uh, represents another country right So if I was an ambassador to another country, I would go and I would live amongst that country. But ultimately, my citizenship is still here in the United States. And I represent the United States in everything I do from the way that I speak to the way that I live. And and as Christians, we are new creations. We are new citizens, right? Our citizenship is actually in heaven now. But where are we living? We're still living in this other place. We're living in this world. And so we live here as ambassadors speaking and representing the kingdom from which our citizenship has actually been transferred to and you know we do this one for the good of others right because we we see that the need that there is as Paul wrote in Romans 10 he said you know uh, how how then can they call on the one that they've not believed in how can they believe in the one in whom they've not heard how can they hear without someone preaching to them and how can anyone preach unless they are sent as is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So we understand, of course, that that people need the good news, and knowing the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade others. But, you know, when we do evangelism, when we act as ambassadors, it's not just for the good of other people. It's also for the good of God, right? Like, God actually cares about the salvation of all people, 1 Timothy 2, 3-4 to four says, this is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. You know, Jesus didn't go to the cross with indifference. He actually cares about how you and everyone around you responds to his, his call to salvation. And this is, uh, I think, something that we neglect far too often when we think about evangelism. We never really think about the, the fact that God wants his name to go forth. He wants people to be saved. He, like, we only think about it in terms of, yes, people need it, but like, what about the one that we love even more, God? And how he desperately wants his people to be reconciled to him. You know, I was moved by a story of these uh, two Moravian missionaries. Moravia, it's an area that was in uh, what's now present-day Germany. These guys lived in the 1700s. Uh, their name was, uh, names were Johann Dober and David Nitschmann. And uh, they felt called to minister to some African slaves in, in the Caribbean. In uh, 1732 was when they really felt the Lord putting this call heavily on their lives. And so, they, you know, they present this. Say, we, we want to go and preach these slaves in their Caribbean, and they run into a lot of resistance. and No, you're not going to be able to go. They're not going to let you onto the island. They're like, we'll, we'll sell ourselves into slavery if we have to to get there. Um, they're like, well, no, they're not going to let you sell your, they won't let you work as a white man amongst black people that are slaves. And, and so there was all these, these obstacles that, that they were facing. They're like, well, we don't care what we have to do. We're going to get ourselves there because these people need to know Jesus. And so finally, ultimately, they were able to get there. Uh, they, they didn't ultimately have to sell themselves into slavery, but they were able to get to the Caribbean, to these islands. And uh, as the ship was pulling away from the shore in Germany, they shouted out, May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. And I was so moved by that because my only thought, when the first time I heard that story was, yeah, yeah, these people need this, these people need this. And, And the first thing that was on their mind was, God wants this. Like, the lamb that was slain wants the reward of his suffering. Jesus died to bring people to himself. And that should be just as great of a motivator for our evangelism as the fact that other people need to be saved. You know, they were thinking primarily about Jesus. They clearly loved the people they were going to preach to, but they loved Jesus even more. And it was their fervent love that compelled them to hop over any obstacle that was in their way to be able to do this. And this actually brings me to the last thing I want to say about how the love, the crazy love of God impacts us which is that you can't be stopped. You know, when the love of Christ controls you, there's no obstacle that can stop you from following him, right? Like, love has a way of overcoming obstacles, doesn't it? Uh, you know That song, ain't no mountain high, ain't no valley low, ain't no river wide enough. W- why? Why is there no mountain that's, that's too high or no valley that's too low? Why is there no river that's too wide? Because love— <laughs> love is going to make him get over any of those kind of things and and this song is essentially what paul was saying to the corinthians in chapter 6 verses 4 to 10 i'm just going to read through those again you can follow along with me in your bible if you want to chapter 6 verses 4 to 10 known yet regarded as unknown dying and yet we live on beaten and not yet killed (laughs) sorrowful yet always rejoicing poor yet making many rich having nothing and yet possessing everything man it's it's convicting for me to read that right like i stand up here i preach i I believe the word of god but i want you to know like i'm on this journey with you too like god has a lot of sanctifying left to do still in my life um I'm convicted by the life of Paul, by the lives of those Moravian missionaries I told you about. But I understand that, that God's love has, has impacted me in a crazy way, and I want it to continue to impact me even more. And, and I don't know what kind of obstacles may be in your life or in my life going forward, but man, may we be people that cast every single one of those aside in our pursuit not to live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. Let's be people that are done with fear, done with distractions, done with all this, this stuff that that just frankly is, is very, very worldly, and, and, and cast that view aside. Say, we're not going to view people from a worldly point of view anymore. You know, what can stop us when we have the love of God? I love that last line in, in verse 10 there. He says, Having nothing yet possessing everything. Having nothing yet possessing everything. We have been given everything because of Jesus. We have been given the righteousness of God. He took our sin away, He gave us His righteousness, He's adopted us as His children. What is there left that this world has to offer us? And so, as I draw to a close here, My question for you is, how is it that you will react to this crazy love of God? First off, if you don't know him, like, are you going to come to him for salvation? 2 Corinthians 6, 1-2, it says, as God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you, and in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Man, if you are, are at a spot where you're not close to Jesus and, and you're still in your sin and, and, and you don't even know uh, if you want to follow him or not, I just urge you, man, today, let today be the day of salvation. And, and if you have questions about what it means to enter into a relationship with Jesus, there are going to be people around the room, uh, at the back here during the worship time, we're going to have lanyards on and say, how can I pray for you? I'll be back there. Um, me or any of the others will be happy to speak with you about what it means to enter into this relationship with Jesus, to, to, to experience this crazy love that he has for you. He already died for you, but will you be one of the ones that lives? And then for those of you that do know Jesus, like, will, will you, like Paul, have the attitude where you say, we no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf? You know Jesus died for you. will you live for him? Let's pray God we thank you um that you're a God that honestly um is is impossible for us to to fully fathom or understand in so many ways God you have so many fantastic attributes you're you know all things. You see all things. You're infinite and eternal. And yet, God, one of the craziest things, I think, for us still to grasp is the, the depth of love that you have. God, I pray that, that, that you would soften our hard hearts, that you would um, just, God, God, touch our hearts. Melt their ice that, that is, is so cold to your love. Help us, Lord, to, to receive the grace that you give us. God, I thank you for that, that beautiful reality that in, in Christ you're, you're no longer counting our sins against us. God, I pray that, that today would be the day of salvation for, for any that are here that don't know you. And God, for those of us that know you, myself included, I pray, Lord, that, that you would help us to be people that um, are just moved more greatly by the reality of your love. Lord, wherever we are holding on to things in our lives that just, I don't know, don't, don't matter or there's obstacles that are holding us back from being faithful to you, from giving up sin in our lives or sharing your love with others, whatever it may be. God, I just pray that stuff would be cast aside, that that, Lord, we would be people that are okay <laughs> with even being called crazy. Like, that's fine. Like, let, let us be, be fine bearing your reproach. Like, Jesus, you you were stricken, you were smitten, you were afflicted. You're a man of sorrows. You're pierced for our transgressions. You're crushed for our sins. People mocked you and jeered you. And, Lord, I just know that, that, that you're, you're king. Like, you, you have a love that, that loved even the people that were doing that. And, God, I just uh, ask that you'd help us to have that same kind of love. Help us to, to just be people that are transformed more and more into your image. I thank you that you've made us new creations. Help us to walk in that, Lord. We just love you so much. You're worthy of all of our praise. We just pray this in your son's awesome name.